This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Amy Newmark. Please enjoy this rerun of one of my favorite episodes from last year. Changing your life one story at a time. This is the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast with Editor-in-Chief Amy Newmark. Hey, it's Amy Newmark with your Chicken Soup for the Soul. And today we're talking about Chicken Soup for the Soul. I'm speaking now. Black women share their truth in 101 stories of love, courage, and hope. And it's not just stories in this new collection. We have a dozen powerful poems as well. And today we're going to hear Stephanie Gates read her poem from the book. It's called, I Am Not Safe. And this is something that we absolutely need to talk about. So let me introduce you to Stephanie before she reads her poem. Stephanie Gates is an educator, a writer, an activist, and also a really great poet, as I now know. She is a lifelong Chicagoan, which I guess is how you describe somebody from Chicago. She enjoys spending time with family and friends. Though she has no children of her own, Stephanie has been a surrogate mother to many. Her mission is to leave the world better than she found it, and she is passionate about eradicating colorism through the creation of Pretty As Me slash Handsome I Am, an annual school event which celebrates the diversity of beauty. She is an often published writer. Her works have been included in a number of anthologies, including this new book, and also another Chicken Soup for the Soul book, Inspiration for Teachers. So Stephanie, welcome to the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast. Thank you. I am both honored and excited to be here. And thanks for finding a quiet place in the middle of the school day to record this. I'd love to have a start off with you reading your poem. And then after that, we can discuss the book in which your poem appears. Okay. So my piece is entitled, I Am Not Safe. Seems like every time life starts straightening itself out, something's got to go and happen. Jacqueline Woodson, peace, locomotion. I am not safe. This is a reality that I wake up to every day. I can't opt out of situations that might not be safe. Life safe sex, I can make decisions that keep me safer, but there is no safe place for a black woman in America. The face of race is a black man and gender is a white woman. Me, ignored, overlooked, rendered invisible, or believed to have the strength of a superhero. Therefore, I don't cry, I don't hurt, I don't bleed, and I don't die until I do. So who cries for me when the face of race is a black man and gender is a white woman? I have been stopped by the police for walking in a white neighborhood, driving in a white neighborhood, for having temporary plates on a new car and for pulling into a hotel driveway. My car has been flanked by officers on both sides, my nephew in the passenger seat, 
my crime, a rolling stop. I was five when Dr. King was assassinated, too young to remember much, but I do remember the sound of wood breaking as the police kicked in our door, chasing my sister who had been standing on a corner near our house. I remember them shining their flashlights. I remember their voices. My sister hid. She was not taken to jail for violating curfew, but we had a busted door. I am not safe. Saturday night, awakened from my sleep by the sound of sirens, learning that the nonviolent protest had turned violent. Property destroyed. Protesters, rioters, and looters. Trapped downtown. CTA service cut off. Bridges raised. Late Saturday and early Sunday morning, neighborhoods under attack. My failed attempt to go to the store on Sunday because the stores took precautions and closed early. On my way home, I watched as people stuck their hands through broken windows for merchandise. I went to sleep to the sound of sirens. On Monday, I stepped over broken glass from shattered windows. I am not safe. I have asthma and hypertension, and I live in a zip code with a high rate of COVID-19. For me, contraction of the virus can be death and yet many in my neighborhood are unmasked. I hear the cries of those who want their freedom, those who demand we open the state, open the country, the most vulnerable among us be damned. I am not safe. Mary Turner was eight months pregnant when she was lynched for speaking out against the lynching of her husband. Her unborn baby cut from her belly and stomped to death. Reese Taylor, kidnapped at gunpoint, raped by six white men. Sandra Bland died while in police custody. Atasiana Jefferson and Brianna Taylor killed in their homes. Six of the victims in the Charleston church shooting were black women. I am a black woman in America and I am not safe. <sighs> wow. That is a really powerful poem, Stephanie, and I'm really glad you were able to read it on the podcast because everybody needs to hear this and understand this and be educated, those of us who don't live in the America that you live in. So thank you very much for sharing that. I actually feel like people who are not of color should be reading this book to become educated. And I've heard from lots of women of color who have read it who have said they feel less alone and they feel more understood and they feel more empowered and they are so happy to hear other women voicing the same feelings that they have. How do you feel about the new book? Extremely excited. And I'm humbled to be a part of this work, particularly in the time that we're living in now. I think it's so important for our voices to be heard. And so to be chosen as one of the 101 stories, and I'm speaking now, is an honor and a pleasure to be a part of this work. Yeah. And you are, of course, a previous contributor anyway. You were one of the handful of contributors who had already been published by us before this book. But the very cool thing is we have something like 106 new writers, new to Chicken Soup for the Soul, who were published in the book also. Because I don't know if you noticed, but we had so many great submissions that I couldn't just keep it to 101. So I said, well... Technically, it's 101 stories, but then I put 12 poems also, and that way I got us up to 113 pieces that were accepted instead of 101. So I made the book extra thick as a result. But 
I couldn't resist. There were so many great stories. Yes. I'm not done reading. I'm still reading, but I'm, I started with page one and I'm going to read each piece. So I'm not done reading because I'm still working. We have summer school. So it is definitely on my summer reading list. And so at night, when I wind down from the day, I open up the book and I choose a different story to read. Yeah, we also had so many additional stories that I really wanted to publish, but they just wouldn't fit because I was already maxed out that I took another dozen stories that I loved and we're publishing them in other Chicken Soup for the Soul books coming out in the second half of 2021. And I even have some additional stories that I'm holding on to in case we ever do a sequel to the book. So yeah, it was overwhelming, these powerful, incredible stories. And I'm glad you're enjoying it. And you know what I want to do is I want to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And then I want to come back and talk about some of the work you're doing to address systemic racism in this country. And I also want to talk about the story that you wrote for our book for teachers a few years ago, because I really love that story too. So we will be right back after the break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We are back and we are privileged today to be talking to Stephanie Gates, a contributor to Chicken Soup for the Soul I'm Speaking Now, who shared her amazing poem with us in the first half of this episode. And now we're going to move on and talk about some of Stephanie's other work, particularly, I was fascinated to read a piece she wrote in Medium, and it made me aware of the work that Stephanie does on an ongoing basis to combat systemic racism. So Stephanie, can we talk about what I saw you write about in Medium and this Barrington's White House and the urban discussion group that you're working with and all of that? I'd love to hear about what you're doing in Chicagoland and maybe across the country. Okay, so it's very interesting because I found out from someone out of state about a conversation that was going to take place over a year around race and inequities that would be in Barrington. And Barrington is a good ways away from where I live. So I actually, to go to Barrington, it took me two hours of travel time each way. So what I would do was leave work on a Wednesday, twice a month. I would drive my car to our downtown area, park in a parking lot, jump on the train, take the train for an hour, right, for an hour, and then someone would pick me up from the train station and I would go and engage in these conversations. What happened was how I got involved in the Barrington Year of Courageous Conversation was I was going to a lot of workshops around systemic racism, around equity, around inequity. And so I wanted to do something more than a one and done. And I saw that they were going to have this series over the course of the year. And so I reached out to the person who was in charge and 
I found out about the series. And then I later learned that they were offering a fellowship. And the fellowship meant that in addition to coming once a month for whoever the speaker was and the topic was for the month, the fellows would come together and go into more detail during the second Wednesday of the month. So every other Wednesday, I was traveling to Barrington and we would talk about inequity. We talked a lot about race and inequity, but we also talked about disability. We talked about socioeconomic status and what what happened is an expert or a person who was doing that type of work would come in and they would have a discussion with us that we would break into smaller groups. And then in two weeks, the fellows would follow up and do a deeper dive into whatever conversation. And so it's interesting that you asked about Barrington because it was traveling back and forth to Barrington that actually sparked the piece that's in the I'm Speaking Now book. So I live on the south side of Chicago and the people in Barrington, I guess, watch the news and they have fears of the south side of Chicago as they do the west side of Chicago where predominantly black people live. And so one of the conversations that we were having, we were talking about something and I expressed my fear of coming to Barrington and Three or four different people asked me, why was I afraid of coming to Barrington? Because Barrington was a safe neighborhood. And I explained to them that with all of the racial tension that was growing in the country, me, a Black woman coming to Barrington, an upper-class, predominantly white neighborhood, was not necessarily a welcoming feeling. Like, I had to, you know, think about where I was I rode the train. So as I'm riding on the train, there are fewer and fewer people of color on the train the further I get out. So when I get to Barrington, it's predominantly white. I'm in a room full of, on average, we had about 100 people. And there may have been, there were 10 or less people of color in the room. So I was expressing to the people in the group that for me, in a place that I don't know, where people don't look like me, where we're facing rising racial tensions in the country, that there is a natural fear for me. And so we ended up engaging in a conversation about fear. And they told me, and I, so I asked, would you travel to the south side of Chicago? And they were like, no, you know, because of the violence. But we each had fears about where the other person lived. But it, it just, it was funny because for them, my fear seemed irrational because they felt that their neighborhood was safe. And so that was actually the catalyst for me to think about, well, where am I safe? And when am I safe? And that was the beginning of me thinking about this piece that I ended up submitting to and having accepted into I'm Speaking Now. Yeah, I think that white people don't understand that we can live in a safe neighborhood, but a Black person coming into these predominantly white neighborhoods does not feel safe at all. I mean, I was talking to my son the other day and he works with somebody who lives in a white community outside of Boston, but they are a black family and they were picking up something free from Craigslist or something. And she had to call ahead to where he was going to pick up what he was picking up and explain, my husband is a very dark black man who is six foot four. He will be coming to pick up the item that you advertised on Craigslist. Because otherwise, the fear was that somebody would call the police and say, there's this really scary, large Black man in our neighborhood, and we don't know why he's here. 
And so she has to call ahead every time he's going anywhere so that the police are not called. Because obviously, if the police are called, there's always the risk that a Black man gets killed for no reason. And so hearing stories like yours, hearing stories like the one that my son told me, this is what white people need to hear to really understand what you live through. Right. But the other part of that, one of the other things, one of the final pieces, so in my work with Barrington, we also had a blog and I contributed to the blog. I talked about overcoming my fear to come to Barrington, about the work that I've done in Barrington. And then the last piece I wrote was about not being defined by the trauma of racism that I wanted to be seen in my full humanity. So I think that's another part that we always talk about the trauma and it's important. And we always talk about the racism and it's important, but also important is that as black people, we still live, we live full, joyful, productive lives. And I also want to get that message out there that despite what we have to go through, we still want to do everything that everybody else does. And we still do those things. We engage with our families. Uh, I talked about in my piece that how when I was a child, I went to camp and took piano lessons and dance class, you know, to dispel the myth of othering, I guess I would say, to see me in my full humanity. Right. You do all kinds of great things. I love the fact that you do triathlons. I'm very impressed because not anymore. That was when I was younger. I did them when I was younger, but it was a lot of fun. I'm still (laughs) impressed at any age that you would do it. I'm still impressed. I think you did it in your 40s and that is very, very impressive. So let's also talk about where you teach because you wrote a great story for Inspiration for Teachers about how you got this job as a substitute and then this other person like got ahead of you and got the job, but then failed out really fast. So then you got the job and now you've been there for 20 something years and you're a teacher in, a, I guess your, your school is primarily African-American and Latinx. So you are dealing with kids who are living this life of systemic racism and probably coming to school without some of the advantages that other kids have. So tell me about your teaching life at this school. Okay, so the piece that I wrote for the other chicken soup book for teachers, I was at a different school. Okay. That was the first school that I worked at. So that was where I was first hired as a teacher. And in that school, the population was predominantly African-American. I am completing my 28th year of teaching. And so now I am teaching at a school that is African-American and Latinx. So that's why I am currently, I teach middle school. That's a fun age. Puberty? Puberty. And this year was interesting because it was puberty and the pandemic. So we spent the majority of the school year remote. And then we returned in person in April, but all students didn't return in person. As a matter of fact, most of the students were still online. So we ended up doing what is called hybrid teaching. And so we have students that were present in the classroom, and then we had students that were present virtually. So it was a matter of juggling students in person, as well as students who were online and trying to reach 
all of them. So it was definitely an interesting school year. I'm sure you learned a lot about technology. I know I did. I was never a Zoom user before the pandemic. I think my computer skills have improved dramatically as a result of all of this remote stuff. I would agree with you 100%, Amy. My computer skills have definitely increased over the last two years because, you know, last school year, we ended the school year remotely. And so what I would do is my colleagues and I would try to figure out, they have a lot of wonderful ed tech programs, but there is a learning curve involved in all of them. So my colleagues and I used to take turns figuring out how to do one. We might go on YouTube and look at some of the YouTube videos. And then we don't use Zoom at school. We use Google Meets. And then we would open up a Google Meet and share our screens and teach each other how to use the technology. So it was a combination of creativity and ingenuity and flexibility to be able to get through the school year and absolutely positively the uh, cooperation of colleagues and friends. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been great talking to you today. I'm so glad we got to hear you read your poem because it is extremely powerful. And in the book, it starts on page 49 of Chicken Soup for the Soul. I'm speaking now. I'm Amy Newmark. Thanks for joining us today. You can go to our website, chickensoup.com. And if you click on the podcast button, you'll be able to read more about this new book I'm speaking now, which you can find at Target, Walmart, your independent bookstore, Black-owned bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Amazon. And you can sign up for our free newsletter and get stories every single day for free, including stories from this new collection. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really wonderful. Thank you for having me. All right. And now I know you're going back to your classroom. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.